I want you to turn this morning to Luke 10 to a very familiar portion of Scripture. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, in this series that we're doing on uh, the gospel and culture, trying to... How many of you have seen the... Uh, I think it's the progressive... Oh, no, it's the direct TV commercial. Tim Dory mentioned this, and it's kind of stuck in my brain, and this commercial plagues me all the time. It's the direct TV commercial where... It's like in a modern neighborhood, and there's this old house, like little house in the prairie type setup, and the dad's sitting at the table, and everything is very traditional and very old style. And the kids are kind of saying, why can't we upgrade the direct dish TV? And the father's simple answer is, well, we're settlers. It's what we do. <laughs> okay. uh, we don't change. We're just, it's, it's what we do. And, and throughout this series of commercials that has built for over a year, the, the common theme is no matter what they're asking, no matter what change they desire, the answer is we don't change anything. We're settlers. It's, it's what we do. It's what we're known as. It's what we're marked by. And this morning, I, I want to challenge you to think about the issue of mercy and justice in our culture. This topic is so huge as I've studied it. I've been plagued with having to take 13 pages of notes and bring them down to a sermon for today, which lays, me, lays before me today in three pages. Okay, it's a topic that I, I saw it lived out, but I never heard it preached. Um, seeking to actively bless those who are less fortunate. I lived under a pastor who, who gave away everything he had. Uh, when he retired, he had to move into a two-bedroom apartment. He passed away a few years ago. His wife still lives in this one-bedroom apartment on the premises of the church uh, campus with nothing because they didn't plan for this future. They made a decision to plan for their future with God. And I, I, I've always been struck by the degree of sacrifice, the degree of selflessness, the loose, open-handedness of their life with whatever they had. And so as I reflect back, I realized I didn't hear sermons on justice, and probably some of that was because of how charged things were in the 60s and 70s and a lot of misunderstanding about various leadership within the civil rights movement. I get all of that stuff. But there is no excuse for the church to disregard or lessen the practical theology of practicing justice and mercy. There is no excuse for us to not actively seek opportunities to make a difference in the lives of less fortunate people in our sphere of influence. I want to answer a simple question. The question is this. Do we as Christians have a clear call, obligation from God to seek justice on behalf of others, to practice a generous mercy towards others, to seek to reverse injustice, to do to right wrongs as we are able, to meet the needs of the unfortunate, to love the hurting, and to relieve the broken and downtrodden. Is that a responsibility, an obligation, that God lays at the door of every Christian's life? And to answer that question, I want to let God's word speak, because in the text, someone will come to Jesus and say, what do you think about this? And Jesus is going to say, it stands written. And a quote from the Old Testament to establish a theology of generous justice that should permeate and saturate the life of every Christian. I give you these selected texts from the Old Testament. I want you to let the weight of these texts settle into your heart this morning. 
what stands written. Luke 19, 18. Do not bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor. Proverbs 29, 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Isaiah 117, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the cause of the widow. I want to say this, the orphan and the widow in the ancient world were the oppressed class. Okay, the text is not saying they are the only people that are deserving of help. In that context, they were the vulnerable or the oppressed class. You have to extrapolate those teachings and principles into the culture where you live and ask yourself, who has been the oppressed in my culture? Who has been the unfortunate in my culture? And this is a call to take up action against them. And the opposite in this text is called wickedness. To know there is a need and do nothing. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, says the Lord? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor wanderer with shelter? These are strong words. Micah 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, what is meaningful, and what the Lord requires, what he demands, what, he, what you owe to him as an obligation to act justly, to be fair, to love mercy, and to actively con show concern for the needy and to walk humbly with your God. There's a principle in the Old Testament that I find fascinating. It's a principle called gleaning. We're in harvest season here, and you'll notice that the farmers here take up everything. They don't leave a couple rows at the edge of the field, okay, because it's not edible corn. In the ancient world, a Jewish farmer was commanded by God to leave a perimeter of crop around the field to care for the less fortunate. And to harvest the whole field would be to be in direct violation of the will and plan of God for caring for people. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Matthew 5, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, so that you may actually be the children of God, demonstrated in your actions. James 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts. That it, and the word religion there is liturgy. Okay, that's the Greek word, literally just liturgy. Your practice of worship, the liturgy that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, specific, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What God is saying is that the hallmark, the distinctive mark of a Christian community is its care for the less fortunate. This, I could give you so many more verses. This theme permeates scripture. My question this morning is, does it permeate my life? Does it permeate how I viewed the church and how we should function for our leadership team? Does it affect our thinking about what we do? Because the church can become very inward in its focus. We can become very deeply concerned about our Sunday school classes or our nursery or our programs. And I have to tell you this. It is very rare that I have found leaders to be passionate about what God is passionate about. And I include myself in that statement. 
I don't know how we lost it. But I think in many ways the church has. If true religion is to care for the unfortunate, in this case the fathers and widows, then you have to ask yourself, where is that first in my life? Because it's never present in a church unless it's present in the constituents that make it up. If it's not in my life, it's not in our church. And I think God takes issue with that. Acts chapter 6 establishes a whole ministry called the diaconate, which has as its purpose caring for the needs of the less fortunate. And we're working on establishing that in our church, Lord willing, at the beginning of next year. Galatians 6.10, do good to all people. That is categoric. It is without any limitation or restriction. Do good to all people, especially the family of faith. So there is an order in care that's given, a priority of care, to care for one's family and then to care for the broader family of humanity. Zechariah 7 and verse 9 to 10, I've reached back to the Old Testament. This is what the Lord says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or fatherless or immigrant or the poor. It starts to broaden out. Those without social status, without power, open to abuse. And I I thought that the bullied child, the homeless person, the single parent, the elderly, the person that has lacked the opportunities that you may have had and that I certainly have had. The Bible, I believe, gives a clear, inescapable call to generous justice. A clear challenge and command to help people in their times of need. It's what we do. Okay, now I tie back to my opening illustration. It's what Christians do, folks. It's what the church does. It should just... It should always be what the church is passionate about. Helping people is not optional. Being generous love is not optional. In the Bible, repeatedly, it is a command that I think we shamefully often neglect. And I want to encourage us from this passage of Scripture this morning to, Lord willing, think more broadly. I want to tell you the story of this text Luke 10, verse 25, as a means of challenging us to consider our own hearts. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in context, eternal life here probably means to obtain, in this setting, a relationship with God that secures my future with God. Okay, so what must I do? How do I need to adjust my behavior to ensure that I have a place with God in the future? If you know the gospel, you can immediately sense that this guy's off base in terms of his understanding of the grace of God. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus wisely says to him, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your might. And love your neighbor with the same affinity that you love yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said, do this, and you will live. Now, the individual in context is a law expert, okay? He's, he's a scribe. He's a lawyer in terms of Old Testament law. He He has spent his life understanding the intricacies and demands of the law at some level. We'll understand in a moment that he has a blind side. 
He's conversant in the technical side. He has all the external markers of being a man of God. And so he asks this question, what will secure my place with God? Jesus replies, what stands written? And, and it's very interesting the way that Jesus phrases, what is written in the law? What stands as the abiding obligation is the way the Greek word works out here. What has been written that has abiding consequence for your life today? Here's what he says to the man. What stands written? Now, this man is so well-versed in the law that he could give an extended summary of it. He could, he could probably go verbatim through the whole thing. But instead, he opts for probably what Jesus is asking for, and that is a summary statement or a summary command. And in it, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And there's probably a sense in which the guy flippantly plugs in the right answer. He just, that's it. Okay? And there's an assumption on his part that I'm probably doing that. Here's the question that I want you to wrestle with. Jesus says to him, if you do this, you will live. Why did Jesus put this to him? Why does he ask him the question, what does the law say? Why does he push him back to biblical truth? And I would argue that this was a man who prided himself on strict observance of the legal details. He was a guy that dotted the I's and crossed the T's. And there were many, many details that one could hold to. And everyone around you would think, boy, there, that Carmelo dude, he's really spot on. Okay, he's, he, whoa. Okay, and people would see the external of this individual's heart and assume that they really know what God wants. But Jesus later in Matthew 23, 23 will say to the scribes, woe to you, you tithe, mint, Dill and cumin. You know what that is? That's herb seeds. You count out nine and you give one to God. And you count out another nine and you give one to God. And they were fastidious and detailed about securing amongst their peers the view that I have a place with God. They thought that God's free grace could be earned and that God could be obligated to reward their good, pleasant behavior. And they were so wrong. I think what's happening in this text, Jesus is forcing this man to quote two of the most weighty commands in Scripture because what they are, they're catch-alls. They're catch-alls. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is an enormous command. I don't know about you, but when I share the gospel with someone I, and, and I'm trying to confess to them that I'm a sinner just like they are, this is the command I go to. The first command is a summary of the whole thing. God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I says, I'll say to someone, do you do that? Because I don't. I don't love God with every fiber of my being at all times passionately. That's not me. I want to be that person, but I have to confess I'm not. And then love your neighbor, not just love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as you love yourself with the same affinity and thoughtfulness that you care for your own needs, care for those around you. It's astonishing to me that this man would quote those two commands thinking, that's the commands, and that's what I do. It's astonishing to me. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is upholding a standard that is impossibly high and that the man is powerless to keep, and he's forcing him to quote it. He wants him to say what he really believes, that if I love God fully and I love my neighbor selflessly, then I'm in with God. 
But what he doesn't understand, that this standard is unkeepable. It is impossible. Because when, when you understand this directive, you will never seek to self-justify. Instead, you will acknowledge that on your best day, you are a sinner. And on that day, you will free fall into the arms of the grace of God, saying, God, I can't keep this law. I want to, but I find myself incapable of total obedience to it. So what am I? I'm a sinner who falls short of the requirements of God. I'm not a scribe who dots all his I's and crosses all his T's. I'm a sinner who is saying, God, I, I, I want to stop doing that. It is painful. And it is often perjury. It's not true. When you look at the righteousness that Jesus calls for, you will confess that your self-righteousness is at best deficient. It falls short of what God is calling for. It doesn't resemble these commands. And I ended up acknowledging that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Now, fascinatingly, in response to that, verse 29, this man has an amazing statement. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And you should put in your Bible, in parentheses, if you can. Because the answer is the standard is impossible. You can't. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So what he wants Jesus to do is point to the people around him that are on the A list and to ignore the B list. Because the Pharisees had two categories of people, particularly, that they were not obligated to show affection to. They were foreigners and Samaritans. Those were the two people that their law gave them no obligation to uphold. And the question should start to rise in your mind. How can he square that with the command to love your neighbor? And so what he says is, he says, I'll seek a, a clarification. Define neighbor. And that's when Jesus tells the story that is so familiar to us, the story of the Good Samaritan. This guy seeks to just himself, justify himself. Jesus tells a story to expose his guilt. And folks, if the man will receive it, this is the greatest exposure that God gives to a fallen sinner. It's the exposure of their sinfulness that allows them to know that there is hope for them in the grace of God, unearned, unmerited, undeserved. Right? And that should be the greatest revelation that an individual ever experiences. This man's problem is that he had a list of unlovables. And the truth is he is not a person who keeps the law that he has just quoted. He's a sham, as we are prone to be. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going by. This is the category of the man that Jesus is speaking to. The man's like, oh, there I am in the story. Not good. A priest happened to be going by down the same road. The guy's like, son of a gun, look at that. There I am. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, one who helped the priest at temple. Oh, what is Jesus is stratifying the temple. Do you understand? So the, the priests are the upper level. The Levites are the lower level. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So you have a half-dead man in, here's the key to the text. The need is blatant. It's, it's, it's right there. You, you, you can't miss it. 
and they walk by. And this is meant for this man to be a stinging indictment. This is what you guys do. You count up the seed, but you don't love God. You see someone in desperate need and could, but don't help them. And you have no concern. You pass by on the other side. And I think of this, the two religious men who you would expect to help refuse to give help. I broke this down in my mind to percentages. If it's percentages here, which I don't think it's the intent of the story, but if it is, one-third of people will actually do something. The vast majority will walk by. And I sadly think that's true in the church. I think most people in the church are more concerned about being a good Democrat, a good Republican, a good what the heck ever. And they don't really care. I'm just trying to figure out, at times in my own heart, I'm trying to figure out, how do we get there? And sometimes I think it's because we're concerned about partisanship. And instead of winning our world with a stunning Christ-like love, we battle for territory. And at times we are sacrificing the wrong things. May God help us. Verses 33 to 35. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And do you think this man now is hopeful or in despair? I think he's thinking, here we go again. And it's likely because we're in Jewish territory that the man in need is a Jew, a sworn enemy to the assistant. When he saw him, he took pity. That word literally means he had mercy and he acted appropriately, justly, and generously. He couldn't see the need and disregard it. The need drove him to do something. Sometimes, church, I think we need to honestly open our eyes and do what we should do because we're Christians. You know, sometimes our orthodoxy, our belief system, causes us to feel that we're where we should be. When our, what one person has called orthopraxy, our practical theology, is way out of line. Folks, you can have all the right theological beliefs. And I, I guess this man, according to Jesus, had it down. He quoted, good. Jesus said, you have said well. Good. Do you do it? Is it your life? Has that law ever convicted you and brought you to your need of grace so that you would experience a love that you can only share with others? A love that doesn't restrict you and cause you to feel blessed independently in isolation, but a love that rips your life apart and opens you up to share that love with others because you feel so unbelievably blessed. So this moment of conviction that this text, I think, brings to this man, either it can harden your heart and turn you away from God, or it can open your heart, fill you with the love that you cannot contain, that unleashes you to be a servant to those around you, to be a person who actually cares. An outsider in this story shows love to a bitter enemy and thus is more moral than any religious leader could ever be. You see what Jesus is doing? The outsider becomes an insider and the insider is the outsider. That's what the gospel does. He braved danger, inconvenience, he sacrificed time, he unleashed his resources of time and treasure to do generous Good and justice, because he truly loved. 
Now, Jesus then asked a question to this man. I just, this guy's got to be a good mate. And it's obviously in a public setting. Jesus is undressing this man, taking off his deficient righteousness so that he may experience true righteousness. Jesus said to him, which of these do you suppose was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers and was left half dead? The expert replied, and I love this, I suppose, not the Samaritan, he can't, he can't even say the word. He simply says, the man who had mercy on him. Jesus just checkmated this guy because he wrote the law this man is using. And Jesus looked at him and said this, go and do likewise. End the sham that is your life and become a true Christian who really loves and who really cares. Folks, I would make this observation from this text this morning in application. I would argue that the gospel that is revealed by the great commandments my need of that change of heart from God because that, that standard that Jesus lifts high and has this man quote out loud is, is a standard that is impossible for me to keep. It's a standard that generally convicts me. It doesn't make me feel good about my life. But I would argue that the gospel, when it's properly understood, when I have my heart ripped open by the truth of God's word, or as we've been saying at the building where we're hitting hard concrete, Jeremiah, is not my word like a hammer, says the Lord, or, or like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. This is a hammer that God wants to wield against your soul to shatter the hard-heartedness that is all too common in the church. He wants to break us down. He wants to open us up. He wants us to see that we are broken sinners in need of a glorious Savior and that there is one. The guy exposing this man is Jesus Christ. He is the Savior in flesh in front of him. Convicting, bringing him to a, a, an incredible moment of being incredibly uncomfortable, but the light should be going on. God, save me. I can't save myself. I can't self-justify. Everything I do is deficient. Save me. That's the heart. I think when Jesus says to him, go and do likewise, this is a call to repentance. This is a call to say, buddy, go that way. You were coming this way when I met you. Go that way. Flee to God. Find hope and then love in the way that he calls us to. I believe that the gospel rightly understood makes us generous. And if I am not generous in terms of justice and mercy, I don't understand the gospel well enough yet. And God will help you. The gospel is I deserve God's wrath, but I am graciously blessed by God's grace in Jesus. First John says this, if God so sacrificially loved us, we ought to love each other. You see, when the gospel of God's love for a rebel invades your heart and convinces you that you are a sinner in need of a savior and he changes your life, you can't help but love unless you get used to his love. It's what forgiven people do. When God's grace forgives, it unleashes a wave of generous justice. Nothing drives generous acts of love and nothing shortens your list of lovable people like knowing that you are forgiven and deeply loved by God. We all have a list, folks. We have a list of people that we don't love. You know what God wants to do with the gospel of grace? He wants to annihilate your list and set you free from the bondage that you were living in with your list. You need to understand your list holds you in bondage. And the cross of Christ aims to destroy that list. And it aims to liberate you and free you to become a liberal Christian. Yes, I said that. 
a generous, liberal Christian who practices a love that can only be attributed to a love that's been experienced and that is transforming and changing. And, and, and a love that when it first hits you, it, it breaks your vessel. It shatters you. That's why Paul will later say, we have this treasure, the gospel and Jesus, in earthen vessels so that when they're fractured, the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus, the love of Christ, pours out of a shattered life. Folks, the world doesn't need any more proud people. It needs humble people. It needs people that are so broken and so humbled that there isn't anybody below them because they know that I am a wretched sinner who has only experienced the goodness of God. And it is reaching and it is transforming and it is changing me so that I want to love what God loves. And I want you to know that you don't have to be extraordinary to practice this justice. You don't have to be extraordinary to practice this generous love. You don't have to have extraordinary time, talents, and treasure. Many average people assist in places like West Virginia through our church, through the Walter Huffington, through CareNet, through the vault downtown with some of the young people, through Habitat, uh, through meeting needs in our church family. And I want to say to you as a church family, let this text settle in. Let it transform us. And then do so, as Paul said, more and more. Let this pursuit of a loving life that, that puts the gospel front and center, let it saturate and permeate and change us so that we're not concerned about being good Democrats or Republicans. We're concerned about being good Christians. If we put the same amount of passion, thought, and effort into generous love that we put into politics and sports, we would see a beautiful transformation. And so I challenge you to think, okay, the election season's over. No amens, huh? <laughs> so, was love for others front and center? Was it what you talked about? Was, is it what captured you? Or was it temporal things? And I'm not saying these things are unimportant, that we should never focus on them, because we should. I'm an Eagles fan. I ask you this question, who are you generously loving? God has given each of us time, talents, and treasure. We all have it. Young person, who in your sphere is being mistreated, forgotten, that you can love? That you can allow to feel included when you see them being marginalized and like really make a difference? In the workplace, who needs your help to succeed? Who in your neighborhood needs a little advice, a little of your time, a little of your talent to help them get to where they need to be? And will you take the time to practice a generous justice towards people in your neighborhood who has a need that you can meet? I thank God there are people in our church that none of you would ever know, and I've watched him or her help people, work in their car, serve in ways that put this generous love into practice. And no one ever knows, but God sees. And he is not unjust, he will not forget. Some of you in this church care for aging parents, and you pour yourself out generous love. God is not unjust. What I want to encourage us to do is just to do it more and more. So that we are distinguished 
and known by the love that marks us and that we preach what we also live. So that we remove the gap between our orthopraxy and our orthodoxy. Because it's what we do. Michelle Adams a few years ago. Is Michelle here? She is? I don't see her. Oh, there she is. Okay. Michelle, hold your fingers over your ears for a second. About five years ago, Michelle Adams met a girl named Andresella. And leaving all the circumstances aside, a very deeply hurt person. And God burdened her heart to start loving people. And she started loving people. I haven't seen that young lady for five or six years. She was here two Sundays ago holding her new child. I'm looking at a woman who is now attending a church down at Zarephath, Bible Community Church, who is loving Jesus. And it was a smile on her face. And she is a daughter whose middle name is Michelle. Because somebody cared. Folks, don't try to take on 20 people. You will kill yourself. You'll become Jesus, okay? Don't do, take on one. Who's the person that God has been burdening your heart with? At work, at school, who needs a friend? Who needs someone to draw near, to help, to assist, to guide? That we become a church of people where the, all the help you need is here. And it overflows to all those there that so desperately need to see it. A new building won't build a great church. A commitment to gospel-driven, generous love and justice will. And I look forward to seeing that happen. That we would be a magnet and we would turn on the magnet of generous love so that people will come and people can be served and people can be changed by the gospel that first breaks and then fills to the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. Generous love, it's what we do. May God break our hearts with what breaks his and fill us with the desire to live a different life, to shatter the bonds of contentment and complacency so that we can really be different as the children of God. Father, we love you and we are grateful that you break us and then you fill us, that you Deliver us from performance because, God, I would fail if performance was the means of salvation. I can't keep the first command to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I am convicted every time I make that statement. I want to love you more so that I love others more, so that we honor you because it's what we do. Help us this morning, Lord, as we sing uh, this truth to be convicted. And let the offering that we take up be a blessing uh, to those that will distribute it, and then a blessing to those who receive it, God. So receive this offering from our hands today, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.